0: Are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co host today is Michelle Jewell Shaw, photographer, mom, and award winning volunteer of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Thanks for joining me again today, Michelle.
1: Thank you for having me, Jeremy, and hello to our listeners.
0: We're recording a bit earlier, uh, but this podcast will be released on Columbus Day, October 14th, which will also be the day of our final open house of the season at Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse in Newcastle, New Hampshire. The special Columbus Day open house is dedicated to Friends of Flying Santa, the organization that is keeping a tradition alive that goes back to 1929. Today, the Flying Santa visits Coast Guard stations by helicopter as a way of showing gratitude to Coast Guard personnel and their families for the important work that they do.
1: If people are hearing this in time and they are near the New Hampshire seacoast, they can come on over to Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse today, Columbus Day, between 1 and 5. Santa Claus will be there too. There are details on our website at PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org.
0: And listeners can also learn more about Friends of Flying Santa and the Flying Santa tradition, which, as I said, goes back to 1929 by going to FlyingSanta.org. The Flying Santa tradition ties into the lighthouses of New England, and it's really fascinating. Later, I want to devote at least one episode of this podcast to the Flying Santa, but today we're concentrating on the oldest light station in the United States, Boston Light. And I'm pleased we're featuring an interview with the keeper of Boston Light, who also happens to be the only official lighthouse keeper still employed by the federal government in this country. Michelle, please help me tell our listeners about Sally Snowman.
1: Sure, Jeremy. Sally Snowman was born into a boating family in Weymouth, Massachusetts, on Boston's South Shore and her parents often took her to the islands of Boston Harbor. After graduating from college, Sally joined the Coast Guard Auxiliary. Sally met Jay Thompson during Coast Guard Auxiliary training. Once, when they were in a boat passing Boston Light on Little Brewster Island, Sally remarked that she had always fantasized about getting married there. Jay immediately replied, Let me know when you want to do it. A year later, they decided to set the date.
0: On October 8, 1994, Jay and Sally went out to Little Brewster Island on a friend's 32-foot sailboat named True Love. The 22 guests arrived on one sailboat and two powerboats. Just a month after their wedding, Sally and Jay went back to Little Brewster to do their first lighthouse duty as auxiliarists.
1: Researching Boston Light's past became another passionate pursuit. The book Boston Light, A Historical Perspective, published in 1999 was the culmination of five years of research by Sally and Jay. The almost 300 page book is the most extensive ever published on America's first light station. Sally and Jay also wrote a book on Boston Light for Arcadia Publishing's Images of America series in 2016.
0: In 1989, the U.S. Coast Guard was planning for Boston Light to be the last light station in the United States to be automated and de-staffed. Congress, at the urging of Senator Ted Kennedy, mandated that the station be operated and staffed permanently by the Coast Guard.
1: In 2003, the active duty Coast Guard personnel that had been assigned to the island were relocated to meet the needs of Homeland Security, and Sally Snowman was named the new keeper. She became the first civilian keeper since 1941 and the first woman keeper in Boston Light's long history, which stretches back to 1716. In 2018, for her sustained dedication and outstanding achievement at historic Boston Light Station and for perpetuating our time-honored lightkeeping heritage, the American Lighthouse Foundation presented Sally Snowman with the Keeper of the Light Award I've known
0: Sally for quite a few years, since before she was a lighthouse keeper. I had the chance to sit down and talk with her a few weeks ago. We covered a lot of ground, and I don't want to shortchange our listeners, so I divided our interview into two programs. We're going to hear part one today and part two next week. Let's listen to part one of my conversation with keeper Sally Snowman now. I am here with Sally Snowman. Sally, thank you so much for joining me here today. And let me mention also that your husband, Jay, is also with us. Jay, thanks uh, also for joining us today. And it's an honor, Sally, uh, to know you. I've known you since the 1990s, and you've certainly made a great contribution to Lighthouse History. So again, thank you so much, Sally and Jay, for being with me today. Sally, you first visited Boston Light when you were very young. Uh, with your dad. Is that right? And can you tell us about that?
2: Uh, that is correct. At the time, my dad was a Coast Guard Auxiliarist. Mm-hmm. And that's part of our story too, how this all began with the Coast Guard Auxiliary. So when my dad was um, the Commodore for the Auxiliary uh, in, in 1960 and 61, he arranged for a rendezvous at Boston Light. So, uh, we went out there, anchored the boat, rode onto the beach, stepped out of the dinghy, looked up at the tower and said, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to get married here. I was 10 years old. And in 1994, that happened. Jay and I got married out there. Uh-huh. And so, uh, growing up in Boston Harbor and taking cruises around the harbor all the time. One of the pleasure cruises we do is we would go and see Boston Light, Gray's Light, go down to Minus Light. Boston Light was always my favorite. I always had visions of what it was like to grow up at Little Brewster Island. In 1960, the children came off the island, so I wasn't even aware that at one time families were there. Uh, it, but it's just uh, that whole romantic lighthouse keeping piece. What would it be like to be a lighthouse keeper's wife or daughter?
0: So uh, you kind of partly answered this question, but let's talk a little bit more about how you came to be a lighthouse keeper. Uh, of course, you were, uh, as you mentioned already, in the Coast Guard Auxiliary and you were uh, volunteering at Boston Light. Uh, Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about how you went from being in the Coast Guard Auxiliary to actually becoming the Keeper of of Boston Light?
2: Jay and I started volunteering out there in 1994. Mm -hmm. I wanted to volunteer prior to that, but because it was a uh, three-male billet to be out there, active duty personnel – um, I was not permitted to volunteer. So once Jay and I got married out there in 1994, there was no impropriety there. So we immediately started uh, volunteering out there together. And in watchstanding, what that meant is that when there were three active duty and they rotated two weeks on, one week off, but they had time for vacations, uh, temporary duties, sickness... Funerals, things like that, and they were looking for warm bodies, and they would look for an auxiliarist to come out and do that. So Jane and I would be um, one of those people, or together as a couple, and. Um, Some of the auxiliarists would go out there, and it would be more just spending the night being the warm body. But Jay and I wanted to know everything about Boston Light. So on our first watch, we went out there for three nights, four days. We started scurrying around everything. And by that time in '94, just about everything was gone. It was already picked over or archived or thrown out. But that uh, energized us. So we started on a five-year mission of researching everything we could find out about Boston Light. And we went down to Washington, D.C. We went to any place that we knew that had public places that had Boston Light history. And we wrote the first book in 1999, Boston Light, A Historical Perspective. Also in 1999, the Boston Harbor Islands National and State Park began their tours out there. And when the park was established in 1996, one of the things that was mandated is that the partners that own property in the park were all part of the managers. So it was mandated that the Coast Guard work nicely with the Park Service and figure out how to have public tours. So Sally had just co-written this book and also a teacher. Uh, I was a college professor at the time and I taught teachers how to teach, taught um, curriculum development and things like that. So the Park Service asked if I could develop an interpretive piece um, so that they could use Coast Guard Auxiliary volunteers as historical interpreters to augment their rangers because they were going to have limited funding, but they wanted to have the Coast Guard well-represented out there. And at that time, the three active duty out there, they were a little uh, shy, and they really didn't embrace those tours, and they asked if I would come out that first summer, that 1999, when it was the pilot program. So in 2000, the Boston Light Augmentation Program was created with, um, at that time it was called Group Boston, now Sector Boston, uh, was the one that oversaw that with the Coast Guard Auxiliary, Director of Auxiliary. And so then what happened is we had 9-11 in September of 2001, and the Coast Guard needed to remove those three active duty to do port security. And they then um, three days into that, uh, um, the Park Service wanted to open their parks that were not on military bases or near them. And Boston Light being 10 miles out of Boston, they asked if they could reopen Boston Light for tours. But the active duty weren't there. So they came to Sally and said, Sally, could you take your auxiliarists who have been trained out there to open up the island and give the tours, and so we did. And so what happened was that the Coast Guard started scratching their heads and saying, why do we have the active duty out there? So they started working toward looking to civilianize the position, one paid civilian keeper with a gaggle of Coast Guard Auxiliary, And what forced that hand was 9-11. It took two years to go down to Congress and say, I know this congressional law about having the island manned. Can we do that with a civilian keeper in the auxiliary? And they said yes. So they posted it nationwide for a search for the keeper. And because I was in academia with no facilities management, I didn't think I had a chance for applying. And Jay was after me and said, if you don't sit down and fill out the application, I'm going to sit down and do it for you. So 48 hours before the close, I did sit down and submit my application. And lo and behold, the rest is history. Yes, it is. So we have an academically oriented person now managing Little Booster Island, and the, the key was that the Park Service and the Coast Guard thought it was more important to have someone that knew how to manage the 70 volunteers than it was for the facilities management because the Aids to Navigation Team and um, Sector Boston Engineering could take care of uh, the things that we couldn't do. We could do the ma- routine maintenance, but anything that broke there was, right. um, which the Coast Guard active duty would have had the personnel on the island to do that. Mm-hmm. So um, that's how I got to be the keeper. Uh huh. And oh, I got to tell you another story. Yeah. What's the next question? Because uh, I don't know if it leads into it.
0: Well, I was actually uh, I was actually thinking of backing up a little bit and maybe having you talk a little bit more about your wedding uh, because you just you just sell, what what month were you married in 1994 October. So actually, you're about to celebrate your 25th anniversary.
2: Yes, that is we are. Correct.
0: Yeah. So I was actually thinking of asking you both if you could say a little bit more about about that since you're about to, to have well, a big th- celebration.
2: I think that was the most interesting. When we got married, we were both auxiliarists. We were mm-hmm. both involved in the operations part of the auxiliary component. And so when we asked if we could get married out there, it didn't matter that we were in the Coast Guard family. We had to get a million-dollar insurance policy for a maximum of three hours on the island for the wedding. Mm-hmm. So that cost something like $790 to do that. And we, it had to go through this whole Coast Guard legal process to do this. And, um, of course, they said yes. Uh, so we actually went out there at auxiliary facilities. Just so happens that we did it as pleasure cruises as opposed to being on orders to go there. There were 22 people, and it was also the year that they had started restoration so when we went out there, there were shingles packed up, stacked up all over the place. I mean, it really looked like a construction site. <laughs> Pretty interesting. And um, so we mm-hmm. went out there. We had the ceremony on the grounds. And then those who wanted to had the opportunity to climb the tower. Now, the tide is beginning to go out. My dad's up in the, to, the, to the tower. The boat's tied up at the end of the pier. No dark at the time. And so um, I go down the ladder onto the boat, throw my flowers on the back seat, and said, okay, we need to start shuttling people to your boats, come down the ladder. And uh, somebody took a picture of me, as I'm saying, come on down with my flowers, just sort of hanging on the back of the seat, and that was Jay's most favorite wedding pictures that was the one that he had hung in his office
3: Sally that's who she
2: was (laughs) (laughs) so it was a dress down wedding people wore wore flannel shirts because it was October 8th yeah and it just so happened it was a gorgeous day the temperature was probably like 68 or 70 something like that (laughs) calm seas calm wind oh and another good part of that we had a friend that had a sailboat you know what the name of it was
3: I I do, but tell us. Ah,
2: tell the story. (laughs) Yeah, you can tell it.
3: Name of the boat was True Love, and so it was moored in Plymouth, so Sally and two of her gal friends sailed the boat up to Weymouth, Turn Harbor, so it would be available for the wedding. So
2: we went out on the True Love, and people say, how could that be? You're just making that up.
0: Anything else you'd like to add, Jay? What, what's your big, uh, I'm, I'm sure you have a lot of memories of that day, but what would you like? Well, to?
3: the proposal was was kind of cute. We were going by in, in 93, and Sally said, someday I'd like to get married out there. And I said, let me know when. So a year later, Sally said,
2: Is the offer still open? And he knew exactly what I meant, and he said yes. And that's when we got the while rolling to figure out how to get permission to go out there. So we got married out there on October 8th, and we did our first watch out there November 1st through the 5th or something like that. Legally, without any <laughs> impropriety. <laughs>
0: well, that's that's fantastic. What a, what a story. So let's jump back uh, ahead there you, to when you, after you became keeper in uh, 2003, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, as uh, ev- everybody knows, anybody who knows anything about lighthouses uh, knows that you are, of course, the only official lighthouse keeper employed by the federal government in the United States today. It's not the traditional uh, job that keepers did like 100 years ago or more in this country, but let's talk a little bit about your duties as a lighthouse keeper. Obviously, your duties vary uh, largely according to the time of year. But could you tell us uh, a little bit about your typical duties as the keeper of Boston Light?
2: Sure. And I'm going to back up just a little bit more. Mm-hmm. What was happening in um, 2003 when they hired me, they were considering um, having the Park Service take over Little Booster Island. Yeah. And so when I got hired, I got hired as a temp so my joke is, I have been a temporary keeper of Boston Light for 16 years. The transfer was supposed to take place in July of August 2004, and at the last hour, it fell through. And as many speculations as to why that um, fell through. I don't know anything officially. I presume it had something to do with finances, of um, the Park Service having the money to support the island. So here I am, 16 years later. So when I got hired, the, the um, because it was supposed to be an 18 month to two years job, the focus was keeping the, um, the volunteer p- component going, keeping the watches at Boston Light, training the assistant keepers. Um, and the watches were Sunday to Wednesday or Wednesday to Sunday, so they had to stay overnight. They could stay for a whole week if they desired. And they had to bring everything with them um, that would make them happy. So if they didn't bring the food, they just basically did without. So it took um, good planning. And being a different program, there was none other in the Coast Guard Auxiliary. This was just sort of like pulled out of the sky two years prior. Um, And then there was the historical interpreters that would be working with the Park Service, coming out with them to give the tours. And then the third component was maintenance for those that had already skills, so that if we had auxiliaries that were carpenters, painters, electricians, we could get them um, approved through Sector Boston so that they could do work out there. And again, this was just primarily in the short term. So it sort of evolved now over the 16 years of what I've done. So basically how it has then moved forward is we were able to do winter watches up until three winters ago. And what happened is we had a blizzard and we were out there and they couldn't get us off soon enough. And I did the silly thing of um, sending them photos of being beaten out there. And so after that, they said, okay, unless we know that we can have you get off the island in a timely manner, we cannot have you out there. So that's one of the questions people ask, are you out there all year round? And the answer was, yes, we were. And when we knew there was bad weather, we wouldn't go out there. So it would be like 50% during the wintertime, 100% from mid-April to mid-October. So things have shifted since I'm not going out there in wintertime. Mm-hmm. So um, I've expanded the outreach program, so I do a lot more in the wintertime. I do my best to, to book places at schools, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, senior centers, library, historical societies, things like that. Mm-hmm. And then um, I do get a lot of interviews, I do a lot of writing, and um, then work with the Park Service in planning the next tour season, do the training, onshore training in the wintertime, so when uh, April comes, we can just be off and running. And the t- my Park Service tours typically begin the end of June, so we often run in with that program, too. Right. So my job is extraordinarily eclectic. I really never know when things are going to come up, and if the Coast Guard needs a representative of the Coast Guard, and it has lighthouse or waterfront type of things, they'll send me.
0: So you got to be the keeper, obviously, for the 300th anniversary celebrations in 2016. What was that like?
2: Oh, that was amazing. It was exhausting. I couldn't believe how tired I was when the whole season in October, in the middle of October, is when we switched into our off-season mode. And um, I was just, I just literally collapsed and slept for days. Mm -hmm. And it was um, a -a three-and-a-half-year build-up. We had been planning this for years. But then things don't start clicking until just before in the media Oh my gosh! The media came out of the woodwork. Everyone wanted a piece of the keeper. And uh, we have a boat called the auxiliary vessel two zero one two nine two. That the way it works is if an auxiliarist has a pleasure craft and they would like to help be an extra set of eyes and ears in the harbor, they can offer their boat to the Coast Guard. They get official orders with signboards that say U.S. Coast Guard Auxiliary Patrol, and we get reimbursed for fuel. We just happened to have one of those boats, and we had so much underway time. We were just bringing meteor out, we had extra visitors that year. The Park Service ran more tours. The tours were more full where we typically had 3,000 to 3,500 a year, uh, in a season. We had over 5,000 and we had, uh, we added extra days for it. We had special tours for dignitaries and, um, large groups that wanted to come out. So, um, just keeping the staff. Moving and making sure that we had enough auxiliaries that would come through and, and be there for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because the island's small, it's only an acre and a half at high tide, we had the big public one on George's Island. And we, there were only over 500 people that came to get the cake. They weren't necessarily all there for the ceremony. What drew it in was the Flying Santa helicopter was part of the celebration. And that really, really uh, was the cake topper. (laughs) was because everybody came out of the fort to see what that was. And then they got to see the activities that we had in the... um, In the shaded area out of George's Island, there's picnic tables. So we had arts and crafts things for kids. We had the wallers from the gravesite. light. Uh, They had a display. It was just a really all-out fun day.
0: It was a great day. day.
2: And it was a a very windy day. And the helicopter pilot um, did a fabulous job landing the helicopter in the wind we didn't we were sort of touch and go literally <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: now of course uh Boston Light has so much rich history such uh, you know 300 years of fantastic history and you and Jay did a, a great job compiling the that history in your two books which I have right next to me here uh I'm wondering if there's a particular story or a period of history that stands out for you personally as your favorite
2: Oh, my favorite is um, during the 1930s and early 40s, <laughs> the keepers that were out there. Yeah. And um, the first assistant keeper at the time was Ralph Norwood, Yes. who would then become the keeper when the principal keeper, Babcock, moved on. Yeah. Uh, Ralph stepped into the keeper's position, and he had a choice. He could remain civilian. Or he could become a Coast Guard Petty Officer, because in 1939, the Life Saving Service and the Lighthouse Service was merged. So it took a few years to get that integrated and get the personnel to decide whether they wanted to stay civilian or if they wanted to um, join the military. So it turns out that when Jay and I were writing our 1999 book, we got in contact with the Norwoods. So this is in um, 95, 96. Before we even knew about the Boston Harbor Islands um, National Park, we knew there was a park being established, but we were just what was in the media. So we had the the um, amazing, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, honor, of meeting Priscilla Norwood that lived in Plymouth. And so she gave these phenomenal stories about what it was like living on Little Brewster Island. And then as um, we were putting the book together, because Jay and I were just auxiliarist at the time, nobody wanted to talk to us. It wasn't enough to be auxiliarists. If we had been Coast Guard, it would have been a different story. So as soon as I got hired in 2003, People were coming out of the woodwork to come and out to the island and to hear stories. But in the meantime, before that, I had also met some of the other Norwood children and had brought them out to the island. And in 2001, we had two of them, three of them on the boat Mm -hmm. on 9-11. Mm. and I was picking them up at Station Point and Jay was working at the time so I had another auxiliarist Jim that was crew member on my boat and um, so at Point Aladin we walked into the galley just as the second tower was collapsing so we're standing there in awe and the officer of the day turned to us and said if you want to get underway you better do it right now because we know the is going to be closed So we got underway on the boat to go out to Boston Light. The time we got there, the harbor had been closed, and the two active duty that were out there were told to lock the place up. They were going to be taken off the island to do port security in Boston. So when we got there, the keeper out there said, you can't land. I'm going, okay. So I turned to the ladies and say, well, let's do a harbor tour so we did um we went around by graves and we went to george's island to see if we could have picnic there were two rangers there and by this time there was nothing happening in the harbor my facility with jim and these three women were the only moving boat in the entire harbor. No lobstermen, no nothing, no airplanes. It was eerie. So we go to George's Island and ask the rangers, is it okay if we picnic here? Because we can't go to Boston Light. That's been secured. So um, we went there, and I just remember there was a fourth woman, a fourth woman that um, actually drove, um, I'm forgetting her name, the one that lived in Maine. And there was one from... Um the Western Massachusetts and she was there and Another one, another
0: was, one of the Norwood siblings yes. or something. It was Georgia.
2: Georgia, yes. And uh the, the one that was out in Springfield.
3: Was it Wanda?
2: Wanda. Mm-hmm. So we had Wanda, Priscilla, um and um the one I just forgot. Georgia. Georgia. And A friend of georgia's who drove georgia down okay turns out her husband in the coast guard worked um uh at the coast guard base in south portland maine Mm -hmm. so he was calling her on the cell telling her what was going on because we were totally clueless so now we're finished we're out on the boat for four hours. So we dropped him off at Pemberton Pier because we couldn't go back to Station Point Alladin. And the women walked over to the station to get their car. And um, the woman's husband, who was in the Coast Guard, told her that Boston was closed off. She would need to go 495 to pick up um, 95 to get back home. So what happened on the boat what was great because they had stories about their experiences at Great Booster yeah. and Middle Booster and Calf Island in the rowing contest that they would have and Priscilla won every year. I mean, that was before there was anything like women's lib or anything like that. And she was only a teenager. She was only sixteen, seventeen years old. Yeah. Um Winning the races. Right, right. And told us how she was the one that rode the kids from the island over to the mainland. Mm -hmm. And so we just heard about, um, you know, did the finger counting of 19 kids between the three families living on the island. Although the Babcock family, two of them were were older, so they would come for holidays and weekends like that. There was still only three outhouses.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: In, on a one and a half acre <laughs> it's island. It's incredible.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, th- th- what an incredible story that is. I, I don't think I. I don't think you ever told me about what happened on, on 9-11 with them. That's a, that's an amazing story. Uh, but
2: it, it, it's a story that yeah. that it's sort of emotionally to tell me to tell that story because it was oh my gosh what's happening to us and being disconnected because yeah. we only had the cell phone of the friend of Georgia who yeah. drove her down
0: it would have been an incredible story just uh, spending the day with those people but for it to happen on that particular day maybe. so they were
2: reminiscing about world mm-hmm. war Two and how the main light was extinguished but the fog signal was still utilized and at that time they had the boston light auxiliary light that shined toward how got right. to guide the ships that Came out of there so they wouldn't hit Toddy Rocks. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was just an amazing day. Oh, and a, and a sort of funny part about it that the Coast Guard never came and got the two active duty out there. So they called us on the radio to ask us if we would pick them up with the dog, CMA, hmm. uh, to bring them into Station Point and The time we got there, the Coast Guard was arriving at the same time we were to pick them up. Mm-hmm. So we just headed into a, a slow bell, into Pemberton Pierre to drop the four women off, wow. and we took Sammy home with us.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um. <laughs> I met several of those Norwood siblings and their mother Josephine. You know, back in the early nineties, mm-hmm. uh, and they they told me some of those stories. Of course, Josephine lived to be a hundred. And uh, our listeners might not know, the last, uh, that the last of those Norwood siblings uh, passed away just uh, two or three years ago. I don't know if you know that, Sally. Uh, Faye was the last, last one. Uh,
2: yes. Passed and, away
0: not too many years ago.
2: Um, and we had the privilege of seeing, had spending some time before all that happened. We saw her when she was, was sick. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think is interesting is, out of the nine Norwood children, nine of them died of, ni- of um, three of them died of brain cancer.
0: Mm. I didn't I realize that. Was that. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, I'll just add one. You mentioned uh, the Babcock <laughs> siblings who were there at the same time. They were a little bit older. Maurice Junior. Maurice, the son of Maurice Babcock, the longtime principal keeper of Boston Light. Uh, I interviewed him a couple of times back in the late eighties when he lived up in Lubeck, Maine. Uh, and he told me that uh, the, everybody got along well back in the the 30s or early 40s. Uh, but he said it was a little bit territorial with all the, the, the families there at the time. And he told me that uh, one time he wandered onto the Norwoods part of the island without asking permission first. <laughs> and one of the Norwood girls socked him in the nose. I'm not, not sure which one it was. Maybe Priscilla. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm just guessing.
2: But, <laughs> that, that, that's, that. She, she had the... the, the the character that would have done that
0: that would have been my guess but anyway so but mainly they got along great but that is one of my um that's one of my favorite periods of boston light history as well and when i when i lecture about boston light i talk about that that same period
2: and i have another piece to add to that sure what what that connection between meeting the norwoods and the in the '90s, mm-hmm. little did we know at that time that I would become the keeper in 2003. Right. So Ralph Norwood was the transitioning keeper from civilian to active duty. Right. And I, the uh, the transitioning keeper from active duty to civilian. Back to civilian. Yeah. So what's interesting is that um, that um, Georgia had brought out a photo of the um, The, of her dad of, uh, taken in 1942. And we had that out in the museum room at at Boston Light. And at the time we did that, there was, I wasn't the keeper at the time. So I thought that's kind of really ironic. So whenever I look at that picture, there's this, um, connection, like there was something out there in -hmm. the cosmos that Synchronicity brought the two families together. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you mentioned Faye because Faye was there too, so there would have been five of them. There would okay. have been Wanda, Faye, Georgia, Priscilla, and the driver. And so the driver was for Faye and Georgia.
0: Okay. Wow.
2: And we have photos. Uh, those, those are the very precious photos that I took of them.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's great.
3: The other thing was uh, when they did get out to the island, you could tell they were, as kids, brought up on the island because here they were in their 70s or 80s, and they were more nimble than many people a generation younger than them.
0: Right, it was like second nature to them.
2: Yeah, they showed us their engravings, and one of them is on the east end of the island where they literally had to lean over upside down and then write it upside down so that you could read it when it was it's very interesting
0: uh-huh. wow
1: in our history segment today we're going to tell you about the tragedy involving the first keeper of Boston light and about the poem that young Benjamin Franklin wrote about him
0: the first lighthouse keeper on the north american continent 43 year old george worthy lake lighted Boston light on Little Brewster Island in the Outer Harbor for the first time on Friday, September 14, 1716. Worthy Lake, who was brought up on George's Island in the harbor, moved to the light station with his wife Anne. They had five children, and it appears that their daughters Ruth and Anne lived at the lighthouse with them. Two African slaves named Shadwell and Dinah also lived with the Worthy Lakes, and also a servant by the name of George Cutler.
1: In November 1718, Worthy Lake went to Boston with his wife and their 15-year-old daughter Ruth. They attended church in Boston on Sunday, November 2nd. Worthy Lake also picked up his pay during the visit to the city, and they left to return to Boston Light on Monday morning, November 3rd. On their way back, they stopped at Lovell's Island and then boarded a sloop heading for Boston Light. A friend, John Edge, accompanied them. Witnesses later said that the party were seen to eat and drink very friendly while aboard the sloop, though not to excess.
0: The sloop anchored near Little Brewster Island a few minutes past noon, and the slave Shadwell paddled out in a canoe to transfer the party to the island. Young Anne Worthy Lake and a friend, Mary Thompson, watched from shore. Suddenly the two girls on shore saw, quote, Worthy Lake, his wife, and others, swimming or floating on the water, with their boat overset, unquote.
1: The canoe, possibly overloaded, had capsized, and all six people, including the servant George Cutler, drowned. George, Anne, and Ruth Worthy Lake were buried beneath a triple headstone in the Copse Hill burying ground in Boston's North End. Benjamin Franklin, 12 years old at the time, was urged by his brother to write a poem based on the disaster. The young Franklin wrote a poem called The Lighthouse Tragedy and sold copies on the streets of Boston.
0: No copy of the poem was known to exist until 1940 when a copy was discovered in an abandoned house on a nearby island by Maurice Babcock, Jr., son of the principal keeper of Boston Light. Edward Rowe Snow, a popular historian of the New England coast, who lived nearby in Winthrop, Massachusetts, helped him identify what he had found. In the late 1980s, I interviewed Maurice Babcock Jr. at his home in Lubeck, Maine. Let's listen to a clip of him talking about the copy of The Lighthouse Tragedy that he found in 1940.
4: And we were up in the attic of this old house, rummaging through old trunks, and papers, and books. And I happened to pick up this piece of paper, and on it, it uh, indicated the lighthouse tragedy. And I started to read it. And it, uh, it began with the history, or a little story, of how this particular ballad that was written by Benjamin Franklin was found. And, uh, someone scouring the beaches, I forget the whole story now, precluding the ballad itself. I took it home to the island because through Mr. Snow, I had, and the plaques that he'd left on Boston Light, I'd heard of George Worthy Lake. Well, I had no idea who supposedly had written this thing. Benjamin Franklin didn't mean much to me except he discovered electricity, so they say. So I brought it home to the island, and it was laying on my father's desk, and... Mr Snow came down to the island on one of his uh, frequent visits and my mother gave it to him told him I had found it in uh, an old house on Middle Brewster Island so Mr Snow asked my mother if he mind if she took it and uh, he took it and uh, a few weeks or a month or so later when we went across the mainland to get the morning paper Sunday morning paper There was big headlines in the paper boy finds ancient ballad and uh, according to the original story it was the only known existing copy in the world worth a king's ransom and it got quite a lot of publicity uh, in the local area Uh, i and through mr with the arrangements made by mr snow there were Uh, two programs, the Big Brother radio program, which was originated in uh, Boston, WHDH, I think. They picked it up. We the People broadcast out of New York City. They picked up the story, and my mother, father, and I, we had a free trip to New York and was on the We the People broadcast because of this story. Now, Mr. Snow had the had it appraised or analyzed at the Boston Public Library, as I understand it. And they couldn't prove that it was actually Benjamin Franklin's own words, because they had never found an original copy. So it became a catch-22. If they ever proved that it was a copy, they'd have to have one of the original. And the only way they know that he wrote this ballad was that he mentions it in his autobiography that he wrote two ballads, one being The Lighthouse Tragedy, and he called them wretched stuff. They weren't much of, of much literary value. But until this day, there's never been a copy of, or a, a original of what he sold on the streets of Boston found. So if they ever find one, they'll prove that what I have is a copy, which will be worth nothing. The original will be worth something. So there's a catch-22. But we keep it to pass on to our kids, as, uh, just uh, to reminisce about. And I have a lot of fond memories uh, about that.
0: Here's an excerpt from the copy of the poem found by Babcock.
1: Quick the prow is upward born, George and Anne's arms is thrown, husband, wife and child together to the chilly waves have gone. Frenzy- clasp of wife and daughter, bears the sturdy swimmer down, save the boat upon the water, nothing of their fate is known.
0: That's all for this episode of Lighthearted. Many thanks to Sally Snowman, Keeper of Boston Light. She is living Lighthouse history.
1: Thanks to all the volunteers and staff of the US Lighthouse Society. For information on how you can become a member, and for information on their domestic and international tours, be sure to check out the Society's website at uslhs.org. Also, check out the social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.
0: Another thing people should check out on the U.S. Lighthouse Society website, if they're not already aware of it, is the Passport Program. The program provides enthusiasts the opportunity to help preserve lighthouses, as well as a wonderful way to keep a pictorial history of their lighthouse adventures. Small donations made by passport holders generate thousands of dollars for lighthouse restoration and preservation projects. Go to uslhs.org and click on Fun, then click on Passport Program. You can buy the passports through the website and at many participating locations. As always, thanks for listening and
1: keep a good light.